usher for reading Psalm 114. But before I read it, I'd like to say a couple of words. Um, this psalm is a little bit complex in its language, so I have chosen to read it from the message, which is a little more modern language uh, as opposed to New International or King James. The second part of this is that the psalmist has chosen to speak to inanimate objects as if they had human qualities. He speaks to the mountain, he speaks to the river, and uh, there's a, a term for that in our English language, but I've been too long since my English class to remember what that term is. But please give attention to Psalm 114. After Israel left Egypt, the clan of Jacob left those barbarians behind. Judah became the holy land for him, and Israel the place of holy rule. The sea took one look and ran the other way. The river Jordan turned around and ran off. The mountains turned playful and skipped like rams. The hills frolicked like spring lambs. What's wrong with you, sea, that you ran away? And you, River Jordan, that you turned and ran off. And mountains, why did you skip like rams? And you hills frolic like spring lambs. Tremble, earth, you are in the Lord's presence, in the presence of Jacob's God. He turned the rock into a pool of cool water, and he turned flint into fresh spring water. Would you pray with me? Give us your spirit. Set our hearts on fire. Burn away the dross and fill us with a fierce love. A love that holds you fast. A love that will not let you go until you bless us. Make us a new people. Give us a new name. Write your word on our hearts. In the name of the one who drank the cup of suffering, even Jesus. Amen. Now hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 28. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring, and your offspring 
shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. I didn't know it. You ever realize after the fact that God is with you? You didn't even know it at the time? Do you ever realize that sometimes it's easier to see the handiwork of God, not the big, big stuff that blows our minds like parting of seas, but just the everyday things. You may not see the work of God at the time, but then you look back You can say, oh, God was with me and I didn't even know it. I didn't even realize it at the time. What if in your own life today, if you're having a hard time seeing the work of God in your day-to-day life, what if a year from now, you look back and think, oh, okay. That's where God was working. Jacob. Jacob of all people. I mean, depending on how you read the book of Genesis, Jacob is the reason that Genesis exists. Abraham, Isaac, everyone who came before, the primeval narrative, all the Adam and Eve and all these stories, the first 11 chapters, all getting us ready for Jacob. And I realize that Abraham is probably the most cited person from the Old Testament in the New Testament. It's not to say that Abraham is unimportant, but man, it feels like things are getting ready for Jacob. Jacob's a big story, and everything seems to lead to Jacob, and then everything after Jacob keeps referring back to him. It's this idea that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's kind of like the SAT. You know, things get more complex and harder, and it kind of leads to the stuff at the end. This is what's going on with saying that God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a way of saying that God is telling a story even in God's name. Abraham, oh, well, that's who the... This big first promise was made to. And then we see the promise come out in Isaac, which is its own little miracle. Oh, but then Jacob comes along. And if you read the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're probably going to have one of two responses. If you read the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob later in the New Testament, you're going to read about these pillars of faith. 
These giants of our ancestry who believed in God and it was credited to all of them as righteousness. And these are wonderful stories and this is the way that God's story is told. But have you ever actually gone back and read the stories in Genesis of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You get the full expanded story. And then you start realizing, wow, Abraham and Sarah look awfully human. Boy, but not quite as human as Isaac and all of his family. And then we get to Jacob, who looks, I don't know, he looks like a man with a lot of imperfections and quite a bit of sin. And then we start telling these stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, and Rebecca, and Leah with her eyes. You know the way Leah is described in Scripture? Her beautiful eyes. And Rachel, you know how Rachel is described with her grace? So you have all these descriptions of all these people. Boy, they look awfully imperfect when you start reading their stories. And it gets me to thinking, especially given the story that we're about to read that leads up to the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, that if these people, the Abrahams, Isaacs, and Jacobs, and Sarahs, and Rebekahs, and Leahs, and Rachels, If they are considered people who lived by faith, and they look so imperfect, there's hope for us. That God is still working in people like them who live today, and that's mainly you and me. This is not about our spotless Christianity. This is about us, like Jacob, wrestling with God. From generation to generation, and then this happens. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I'm not letting you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. 
Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Well, please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. You know the name Israel means? One who strives with God. I don't know. I used to get into a lot of wrestling matches when I was a kid. I never stopped in the middle of the wrestling match and said, what's your name? I never said, I'm not going to let you out of this headlock until you bless me. You know, it's, it's say uncle, but that's not the same as, say you bless me. I'm not letting you out until you bless me. Okay, bless you and bless your children and your children's children. This is... This is one of those stories in Genesis that whenever you read it, you'd be like, oh. If I heard this story in vacation Bible school, I don't remember it this way. All this talk of blessing and wrestling and what's your name, and then the other wrestler says, I'm going to change your name. And then you start realizing toward the end of the story, now wait a minute, who's the other wrestler? Who is Jacob wrestling with? And the first part of the story doesn't really come clean on who Jacob is wrestling with until the end of the story. And it does leave a little bit of mystery because it wants us as the reader to engage this story in a way that we might not otherwise engage it so that by the time we finish reading the story, we start asking questions like, wait, is he wrestling with God? Is, am I reading that right, that he's wrestling with God? Because after all, who in Scripture seems to do all the naming? You know what I mean? Even God, at the beginning of Genesis, starts passing on his power to these first humans, and one of the first powers that he gives them is start naming things. And so, as Jacob and what really appears to be God are in this wrestling match, the other wrestler says, we're going to change your name. You're not going to be called Jacob anymore. Instead, we're going to call you one who strives with God. I don't know. That... Do you ever wrestle with God? Do you ever strive with God? Do you ever wrestle with each other? Do you ever strive with each other? Seems to be awfully built into our faith. See, these stories, as they keep being told, lead to the story of Jacob and Esau, or I guess what we should say Israel 
and Esau, eventually reconciling. Kind of carrying on the family tradition of what appears to be Isaac and Ishmael at Abraham's funeral, much the same way. You see, this is the power of the work of God. That if you can take two people like Isaac and Ishmael and have them at Abraham's funeral standing side by side, you're not going to look at something like that and say, well, they worked things out. And then you step forward and you start seeing Jacob and Esau and all the hatred, all the vitriol, all the things that go on between them, all the deceit, all the running away. If they can reconcile, it's not, it's not their power. These kind of seem to be stories about God. The power of God to pull all of these things together. And the funny thing is, if you think about the book of Genesis being written years after all of these things happened, I don't know if half the time, even while these things were happening, the people were able to say to each other, this is the work of God. I don't know if they could see that at the time. We have a hard time seeing it at the time. I mean, right? Isn't it easier to see the work of God when we look back on our lives? It's hard to see when we're right in the middle of things. As a matter of fact, if you start thinking about the handiwork of God by looking at the things that God has done in the past, and then to look at our own lives, it's probably easier to see the things that discourage us, the things that challenge our faith. Those are pretty easy to cite. I mean, really, we went around the room, had kind of a little mid-sermon exercise and be like, Talk about the way that God's working in your life. You know, we're at church, so it might last a while. But then if we said, okay, now let's go around the room and say, what are some things you're discouraged about right now? Sunday isn't long enough to cover that one. What about your life a year ago? See the way that God was working a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? These are the stories of Jacob and Esau, told long after the fact to look back on them and say, oh, this is how God was working. Now, what does this have to do with us? I'm glad you asked. We at the Bearing Drive Church of Christ have some work to do. And I think one of the places that we need to re-kind of start, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is one of the things that we do quite well around here, which is the way that we interact generation to generation. We do a pretty good job of our generation to generation, the old talking to the young, the young talking to the old, and most of us who are in between that, right? We've got work to do. We need to restart the prayer partner program where the older adults 
share their lives with the younger adults. Not because we as the older adults have to be perfect all the time and then be these pillars of faith. Unless you're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We can be pillars like that. That's not a problem. Not if it's like them. And the New Testament even, you know, take a passage like Hebrews 11, seems very comfortable with saying, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these are pillars of our faith. But yeah, have you read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You don't have to be perfect. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you what, when I was 17 years old, I wish that I could have had a relationship with an older adult, you know, older adult when I'm 17, like someone in their 30s. Who could tell me, you know, there are some days whenever I really wrestle with my faith. I wish I could have talked to someone when I was 17 in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, up into their 90s, who said there have been periods in my life where I've really struggled with my faith. Because you know what older Christians look like to 17-year-olds? Ones who've got it all together. They've had it all figured out. They've had time to think about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and church, and they've got everything figured out. And so maybe one of these days, I'm going to be like them. Maybe one of these days, I'm going to figure out all this stuff about Jesus. And when I get old, you know, like up into my 30s, I'll have it all figured out. I've, I've got it down. Everything will be cool. You know, God will be in His heaven and all will be right in the world. And I wish I could have talked to someone in their 70s who would have said, Man, there are some days I wake up and I have a hard time with all this stuff. And you know what I would have said when I was 17? I would have said, no, you don't. You've had time to think about all this. You've got it all figured out. And they would have said, no, there, there are days when I wrestle with my faith. And I wouldn't have been able to hear it at the time when I was 17. I was 27, 28, I would have heard echoes of those conversations. And I would have been equipped, probably better than I was at the time, for wrestling with God and wrestling with Jacob. Isn't it astounding that Jacob, who's supposed to be this massive pillar of faith, was climbing these stairways to heaven and wrestling with God, and then in the midst of all, I mean, come on, you, you just saw a stairway to heaven and angels going up and down on this stairway to heaven. And then you wrestled with God, and he says, you know, God was there, and I didn't even know it. How do you not know it? How do you not know God was there if you're seeing angels going up and down a ladder, and you're wrestling with the one true and living God? How do you not see it? And in some ways, this gives me comfort. In some ways, it really kind of frustrates me because it thinks, well, how am I supposed to figure all this stuff up? How, do, how am I supposed to live my faith if even he can't see it? Somebody who sees these ladders or these, you know, these escalators to heaven like you know, in the cartoons where 
You know, you saw that and you can't figure it out and I'm supposed to have to live by faith. And that's why I like talking to people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, people who've gone before me, who've actually been able to endure in their faith enough to say, it's not that I don't wrestle with God and it's not that I don't wrestle with Jacob, but it's we're going to keep going. We're going to keep having faith and we're going to keep living by faith. I ran across a quote from the business world over the last couple of weeks that really got my attention. Almost every successful person begins with two beliefs. The future can be better than the present and I have the power to make it so. Well, the first half is indisputable. And I'm talking specifically from the standpoint as a Christian, as a follower of God, as a believer in Jesus. Can't argue with the first one. The future can be better than the present. You know why we're reading Genesis? It's because it is the ultimate expression in the Old Testament of what scholars and the technical people in all of this call creation theology. The Psalms pick up on this and they sing songs out of creation theology. And then the New Testament picks up on these themes and it starts using new language of creation, specifically new creation. That's the way that redemption, the story of redemption is told in the New Testament. That we are the new creation. That the new creation continues to unfold among us so that on today, days like today, we might look at the world and we can say a lot more about what discourages us than what encourages us. But a year from now, we'll be able to look back and say, oh, I could see the handiwork of God because God is unfolding the new creation among us, even today. And the future, because of the work of God, is going to be better today than it was yesterday. And Jesus, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, is going to keep doing this. But the second half is only half right. It's not, I have the power to make it so. It's again from the story of Jacob and all these other pillars of faith. It's what the Lord is doing in us. It's what the Lord has done. It's what the Lord will keep doing. So let all of God's people say, it's what the Lord has done in me. You're going to keep wrestling with your faith. I'm going to keep wrestling with my faith. We're going to keep wrestling together because this is what life looks like. We wrestle with our faith. But then we look for moments. We look for glimpses of the handiwork of God. It doesn't even have to be the big stuff. Sometimes it's the little things that remind us, oh, God is at work among us. I'm going to tell you a story and you're going to think I'm crazy. Or it's going to sound like one of those kind of corny sermon illustrations 
but I didn't get this one out of a book. Because you know, in school, whenever you go to preaching, you can buy these thick volumes of, you know, 10,001 corny sermon illustrations. You can actually buy these books. No, this one really happened. Last Saturday morning, I'm sitting in the breakfast room of Holiday Inn Express somewhere in Virginia, eating breakfast, and I cut open a pear. Just, you know, with your little individually wrapped plastic knife sitting at the table. It's a little bit dirty, so you put a paper towel down, get your pear, cut open the pear, open it, take a bite. People started coming downstairs, and so I ate breakfast again. People started coming down. Jen came down, Gail and Cynthia and Cole and his buddy Noah that was staying with us came down. So we're all eating breakfast, and I told them, I said, I ate a pear about an hour ago, and it reinvigorated my faith in God. Because as I was sitting there eating that pear, middle of nowhere, Virginia, it suddenly occurred to me that there is no way on God's green earth that you could ever convince me that something that good happened by accident. I know people would say, yeah, it could. Okay, you can say that to me, but you're not going to convince me that something that good was just by accident. And if that's the way that something as temporary as a single pair can speak to the handiwork of God, just imagine what God is doing with your story right here, right now. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, and Rebecca, and Leah, and Rachel, and you.